Good morning, Elam. Happy Memorial Day. I'm coming to you on a Monday because this past Sunday we were having some technical difficulties with our stream. Uh, so kind of our sermon uh, audio got corrupted, so we were unable to upload the um, podcast and the YouTube. And I didn't want folks to miss uh, a key part in our journey through the book of Daniel. So I'm coming to you on Memorial Day to kind of fill in those of you who missed uh, Sunday's message in the building so that we can continue to journey together through this Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2 this morning. Uh, the chapter is 49 verses. We're going to go through about 30 of them in depth, uh, but your assignment, your homework between this week and next Sunday is to read the whole chapter uh, so that you'll be caught up, whatnot. So there's 19 verses you need to kind of process through on your own, but uh, hopefully uh, it won't be too challenging for you. Uh, we are now three weeks into this collective journey through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And we're digging into this book because it has incredible lessons to teach us about what it means to be God's witnesses in disorienting times. I remember back at the beginning of this coronavirus pandemic and Someone had asked me what I thought was the most pressing issue or the biggest challenge facing the church in that season. And I think they were expecting me to say something about the virus or masks or public health restrictions or the economic downturn or, or political strife. There's, there's all sorts of challenges we're facing even now. We think of inflation and, and mass shootings and just a deep de cultural despair. But my answer at the time uh, surprised the person who asked me. I said, I believe the greatest challenge facing the church was that God's people might, in a, in a changing season, lose their distinctive witness and fail to shine Christ's light into the world. As serious as all those issues are, I think this is key. The Lord said to us as his followers in the Gospel of Matthew, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus has called us and sets us apart to be his people of blessing in the world. In a system that's battling rot and corruption, he, he says we're to be that preservative element, that community that adds savor to human existence. Christ sends us into the darkness to radiate his life-giving light in those cold places that are desperate for renewal. And let me tell you, in disorienting times, God is not disoriented. He's, he's not surprised or taken aback when the world goes crazy. There's nothing that the chaos around us can do to thwart God's purposes. In fact, he's prepared for this moment. He has a purpose in this moment. None of this chaos can thwart his purposes. 
We're never abandoned. We're never alone. God's still sovereign. He's still in control. control. And our God revels in the opportunity to step into brokenness and make things new, to, to breathe life into what is dying. If the question is, will Jesus find willing partners to join him in this work? Are we up for being God's salt and light in a new and uncertain moment for our culture and country? Last week, we met four young men who chose to be God's witnesses in their own challenging season. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were youths of great promise. They were smart. They were good-looking boys from good families who were destined for wealth and status and greatness. And yet in an instant, their world turned upside down. Their nation was conquered. The temple in which they worshipped was destroyed. They were put in chains and forced to march 600 miles to Iraq, to the ancient kingdom of Babylon. And they had to serve as slaves to their conqueror, Nebuchadnezzar. Everything was stripped from them. Their names, their language, their culture, even their manhood was taken. It's true, Babylon stole their future and their freedom and tried to take every shred of dignity along with it. But Daniel and his friends, they never gave up hope. They never revolted. They never gave in to the way of the world. Instead, they clung to their faith. They clung to the fact that God had sent them to Babylon for a purpose, to be his witnesses in disorienting times. And they knew that God was with them. They knew that his spirit would strengthen and sustain them. So they pressed on. They committed to live distinctively as God's men and to seek the welfare of the pagan kingdom in which he had sent them into exile. Their loyalty was to God first and foremost, and the calling he had placed upon their lives. And as we start Daniel chapter 2 today, as we get deeper into the narrative, these four men have another lesson to teach us. And it's, it's key. It's this. How we navigate crisis will give witness to the world as to whom our God is and where our power lies. How we navigate crisis will give witness to the world as to whom our God is and where our power lies. And we're going to discover in this text that there are two ways to navigate crisis. There's the Babylonian way, which is rooted in mastery and control. And then there's the way of those who live in light of God's kingdom. And that involves laboring in faith and in a humble dependence on God's rescue and revelation. So let's see how this works out as every character in this narrative descends into crisis. So Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. 
This is the most powerful man in the world and he's distressed. He's having nightmares. And I know that doesn't sound like much of a crisis. My seven-year-old has nightmares, but clearly he's terrified. And maybe the ancients knew something that we don't. They believed that dreams were one of the primary ways that the gods communicated to mortals. And Nebuchadnezzar's recurring nightmare, it has shaken him to his core. And the dream we come to learn is about something that Nebuchadnezzar really likes. It's this colossal statue of a man made out of various metals, the head of which I infer is in the Babylonian style. But this glorious figure in the dream, is, it's toppled, it's smashed by a boulder, and then that boulder takes root and grows into a mountain that dominates the landscape. And Nebuchadnezzar has no clue what it means, but it feels like a bad omen, like a threat from the gods, especially since the face on that statue looks so familiar. So Nebuchadnezzar responds by calling together his cabinet and making his crisis their crisis. And this is what we read in verses 2 through 4. Then the king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans, which is kind of this blanket term for his wise men, said to the king in Aramaic, and then interestingly, the book of Daniel switches from the Hebrew language to the Aramaic language right here. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. This council of wise men, they were called the Umanu Mudu. They were the so-called masters of esoteric knowledge. It sounds very Dr. Strange. But these were the ancient world's proto-scientists. These were the experts in all things occult. These were men who watched the stars, who, who studied the entrails of sacrificial animals, who, who charted the flight patterns of birds. They meticulously documented natural phenomena. And they tried to match them up what what was happening in the realm of the events of men because they were trying to see is there a correlation between what's happening in the natural world and what's happening in our kingdom that might reveal the god's intentions how the gods are moving behind the scenes so they were these proto-scientists but they were also magicians, they were sorcerers, they wanted to wade deeply into all that was arcane and mysterious, and they had just libraries full of books that recorded dreams and their presumed interpretation, recorded omens and enchantments and various spells. You see, in the Umanu Mudu, Nebuchadnezzar had gathered the sages and shamans of a hundred different cultures and said, all of you bring all of your wisdom and put it at my disposal to help me in my moment of crisis. 
And really, this should be their moment to shine. They, they can come alongside their panicked ruler and help him regain control through their mastery and their knowledge. So they say to him, <clears throat> the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, oh yeah, he has already asked, they have asked him to share the dream and they will interpret, but he's going to push back. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show its interpretation. This is what we do. We need the data, though. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. How would you have responded? Most of, our, most of us think that our bosses are a little crazy and wildly unrealistic in their expectations. <laughs> I think these guys did too. But their boss was crazy, unrealistic in his expectations and murderous. And try as they might, none of their, the wise men's tools could uncover what was in his head as he was lying in his bed at night. Their education, their intelligence, their discernment, their ability to research, their, their ancient texts, everything was useless if they didn't receive the data of the dream to kind of plug into their system. They, they were at a standstill. So why is Nebuchadnezzar acting in this way? Why not just share the dream and get his advisor's best answer? Well, maybe it's because he doesn't exactly remember his dream, which to the Babylonian mind is a bad omen. If the gods send you a dream and you can't remember it, it is a sign that the gods are against you. And maybe he doesn't want to reveal to his advisors that he doesn't remember it perfectly either because he knows these are crafty men. They might think, oh, the gods have turned against him. It's time for us to, you know, figure out what our options are. Maybe we can start to scheme with whoever's next in the pipeline and, and, and support his successor and, and secure for ourselves a place in the next administration. 
Maybe Nebuchadnezzar's just always been skeptical that these wise and learned men have been just serving him a bunch of hooey. And he's like, you know what? I'm afraid that you're going to give me an answer, but it's not actually going to give me any real insight into what this ominous threat from the unseen realm is all about. And I'm not confident that you actually will know how to counteract this bad dream. So here's a little test to show me that you have power, that you have insight. I'm going to give you the requirement to tell me what my actual dream was. Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, if I cannot master this crisis through knowledge or wealth or wisdom, I will regain control through ruthless violence. That is the way of Babylon. It's mastery and control at all costs. And as we keep reading, now trouble comes knocking on Daniel's door because he too, along with his friends, are considered part of the the wise men of Babylon. So let's see how he navigates and responds to this crisis. Here's Daniel verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. He just commanded the slaughter of hundreds of men. Understatement. And commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought out Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who'd gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's guard, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Why do you need to kill me right now? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and he requested a time, requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Why do you need to kill me right now? Actually, let's make an appointment. I'll give you the answer you're looking for. Then Daniel went to his house, verse 17, and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel doesn't panic. He knows his purpose. He's been sent by God to seek the welfare of this kingdom because in its welfare, he would find his welfare. God has called Daniel to this moment to give witness to God's life and power. So what does Daniel do? 
In boldness, he makes an appointment with the king. And then he musters all the resources that are available to him as a child of the one true God, as a a follower of the Lord Almighty. And he goes to his spiritual tool belt and he pulls out five tools. My dad is a contractor, so I have this very vivid picture of him as a young boy, of me watching him wear his tool belt and go in and pull different tools out, depending on what the the job, the task required. And that's essentially what Daniel's doing here. And the first tool that comes out of his spiritual tool belt is spiritual community. He gathers his crew, his guys, his, his bullpen of godly advisors and companions that he's recruited to, to offer him wise counsel and to seek the Lord on his behalf. And notice that Daniel has not waited for crisis to strike to assemble his little tribe of fellow witnesses. No, he had this support system in place beforehand. These were men who, like him, were were ride and die for the Lord. They were committed to being there for one another, for encouraging one another, for building one another up in their calling to be God's salt and light in the darkness of Babylon. And if you don't have a crew like this, you need to assemble one. You need to be bold enough to ask. You need to reach out and to someone and say, hey, will you support me in my walk and, and build me up in the strength of the Lord. I I need people to pray with me and to keep me accountable to all that God has called me to. Daniel couldn't do it alone. And neither can we. We need an inner circle of friends who love and live and, and think like Jesus and are in it with us wherever Christ may call us. So the first tool out of his tool belt is spiritual community. The second tool that comes out of the belt is faith, or Daniel's confidence in God. In times of crisis, you have to know who your God is. And Daniel's just watched all of these wise men lean on their own wisdom, turn to their own gods, and each and every one of them, things have come up short. Their gods have proven faithless. Their gods have proven blind to what Nebuchadnezzar's dream has been. But Daniel has faith. He he trusts God's presence. He trusts God's goodness. He trusts God's preeminent power. And you see, you have to know deep in your bones that God is merciful to sinners, that he's eager to rescue and save. You have to rest in God's love. And and even if you can't see a way out, find strength in the fact that God, our God, delights to reveal himself to his creatures. He cherishes the opportunity to unveil the glory of his grace. So Daniel turns to spiritual community. He rests in God's love. He leans into faith 
And then the third tool that comes out of his belt is prayer. We sort of get this intuitively. When crisis hits, it's all pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. But do we actually get on our knees and do it? Do we set aside time? Do we push away distractions? Do we get ourselves still in God's presence? Communication is key to any battle plan. And prayer is absolutely integral to navigating disorienting times in the power of Christ. I'm guilty about this too. I I talk about prayer. I think about prayer. But I struggle to stop and, and actually commune and connect with God. You see, prayer is not complicated. It's this moment when we talk to God and and we appeal to who he is, his character. We ask for his steadfast love and his mercy to be worked out in our rescue. God, I know who you are. I know you are trustworthy. Now prove yourself so in my life. Prove yourself strong in this circumstance. So if you're following along, spiritual communities, one tool in the belt. Faith is another tool that comes out. Prayer is another tool. The other thing we see in that passage is praise. When crisis comes, Daniel says, worship. Sing to God for all to hear. Sing songs that rehearse for your heart everything you know about God's great majesty and power. Really, it is worship that helps us disconnect from everything else and connect to God. So celebrate out loud that God delights to deliver his people in times of need. Express your gratitude and remind those watching who it is that we serve, who it is that we call our Father. He is the King of kings, the Lord of heaven's hosts. So the fourth tool out of the spiritual tool belt in times of crisis is praise. The fifth tool is, is down deep. It's in underneath the other tools. You, you might not have pulled it out in a while. And it's the tool of divine revelation. The wise men of Babylon had said that the thing that the king asks is difficult And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Oh, but Daniel knows that's not true. Daniel's God does dwell and tabernacle with humanity. He speaks and communes with mere mortals. He can add data to the conversation when no other person can. What did Daniel say? Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is cloaked in the darkness and light dwells in him. There's another great passage from Isaiah that speaks to the same thing that invites us to turn to God for revelation in times of crisis. This is Isaiah 50, verse 10. Let me find it 
for us this morning. One moment. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, this fits Daniel's situation, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God alone. Don't ever forget, prayer is a two-way street. It is when I talk to God, yes, but it's also that moment for listening when, when I shut up and I let God speak and I create space to, to tune out the loud shouting voices of my circumstances and my own needs, my wants, my terrors, my desires. And I turn my ear to God's still small voice. And God in his grace actually adds data to the conversation. We move through life sometimes functionally acting as atheists. Like we're lost in the dark. And there's no God out there. But that's not true. Our God actually speaks to reveal insights and guidance, invitations and rebukes that we don't have access to in our own resources. He reveals to Daniel the contents of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its meaning. And he speaks to us now in equally concrete ways. Daniel gets a vision in the night. And we know how God speaks to us today. He speaks through his word. He speaks through Jesus. Sometimes God speaks directly to our own souls by his spirit, giving us a, a sense, a word, a dream, some sort of internal confirmation. Sometimes he speaks through things external to us, through a person or a development in our circumstances, through a closed door or an open one. And I think we're often deaf to revelation because we don't actually often seek it. In crisis, we get frantic, we, we get frenetic, we're scrambling like the wise men of Babylon. We're going to and fro trying to, in our own resources or connections or knowledge, work out the answer. We're trying to, to make backup plans. We're trying to, in our own strength, navigate this situation to save ourselves. And we only turn to God at the, the very last moment when we've given up hope. Or maybe we're like Nebuchadnezzar and we're going to just fix our situation by sheer force of will, no matter who we damage along the way. And even as those who are the people of God, when crisis circumstances arise, we often lean on our own strength and wisdom and resources. But if you want to pray with the hunger and the fervency of someone like Daniel or Hananiah or Mishael or Azariah. If you want God to show up for you as he showed up for them, you have to realize what they realized. Our rescue comes from one quarter alone, God. If he does not speak, we perish. What did Jesus say? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
We see, leave so much on the table in times of crisis because we're trying to tackle things in our own strength in the way of Babylon. But there is a different way. Let's be a church that seeks God like Daniel and his friends and realize that God's revelation, it comes in that context of prayer and praise. So if you're in the thick of something right now, I want you to take one day this week to seek Jesus intentionally through prayer and praise and fasting. From sundown to sundown, take a day maybe where you're, you're foregoing food or media to be able to say yes to God without distraction, to depend on him as you pursue his resources in your time of need. And see what happens. See if God speaks. See if he provides for you resources that you could not come up for yourself with for yourself on your own. See if you find a peace beyond understanding, a joy that defies your circumstances. The way Daniel and his friends navigated crisis gave witness to the world as to whom their God was and where their power lies. And you wonder how Daniel was a witness? Listen to this in verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanter, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. I maybe wouldn't have led with that. You know, he's already murderous and angry and fearful. And you say, ah, no one can do this for you, buddy. But he goes on in verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. What was being revealed to Nebuchadnezzar and the wise men and even to us listening today? What was the message of the revelation that God shared with Nebuchadnezzar and then with Daniel? It's this. You are in a crisis, and it's a crisis of your own making. The God of the universe stands against you for your arrogance, your selfishness, your injustice, and nothing but direct divine intervention can save you. So you're doomed, or you would be, if it wasn't for the fact that the wise men were wrong. There is a God who not only dwells with flesh, but who chose to take on flesh and dwell among us. His name is Jesus. Jesus is here to directly intervene. He's come to rescue and save. Jesus is the true king of kings, not the tyrant Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus' kingdom is the stone that topples and supplants the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom does not crush with violence, but heals through love and self-sacrifice. And as he did for the wise men of Babylon, 
Jesus makes a way for our own salvation. Notice that. It starts out, and Daniel says, let's seek God so that we might not die along with the wise men. But God's grace is so expansive that not only is Daniel and his, or Daniel and his friends saved, but the entire community, the entire council of wise men experience God's grace and salvation. He provides a solution that they could not come up with on their own, and it leads to their life being spared. This is the gospel, right? Divine intervention, a solution that is revealed that we couldn't come up with our, on our own that means our life is spared. And again, it's through revelation, not of a king's dream, but the revelation of a king on a cross who willingly gave his life for us and a vision, but a vision of an empty tomb that validates that king's victory over evil, sin, and death. In this chapter, guys, we see the gospel preached in Babylon 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And I can't help but think how Daniel's contemporaries, how those other wise men would have responded to this divine intervention. They've been rescued and saved, but all of their expertise, all of their knowledge, all of their divination and omens and All of their learning has proved false. Do you think they can then go back with confidence to their astrological charts, to to the reading of the entrails, and have any sort of confidence in those things? Those things had failed them, but they now knew that there was a God in heaven who spared them simply out of the abundance of his grace. How could they not study and worship and follow him? I love that the gospel begins with wise men from the East who have long studied these things, have long studied the stars and know about the promise of a king who will be born who is God with us, who will be that divine revelation of a heavenly rescue. They come, 600 years later, they come when he arrives to fall down and worship him and give them their best, his, them, his, give him their best and their all, their gifts. How can we not worship in the face of such divine revelation? How we navigate crisis gives witness to the world of whom our God is and where our power lies. We learn that there's two ways to navigate crisis. There's the way of Babylon, and there's the way of those who trust in God's kingdom. 
and those who trust in God's kingdom, they gather a spiritual community. They cling to faith and a confidence that God is who he says he is. They pray in times of need. They praise in times of need. And they look and they wait and they seek and they ask for divine revelation because we are only saved by God's intervention, by God's word coming down to us. And we are only saved by that word becoming flesh, dying on a cross, raising from the dead to rescue and save. If you have not placed your hope and your trust in Jesus, whether in this particular crisis or in the whole of your life, I encourage you to do that today. Let's pray. Dear God, your grace is overwhelming. And God, whether we are call ourselves followers of Jesus or we are investigating Jesus for the first time, we often, all of us, navigate crisis in a way that believes we are all there is, that if we can't do it, if our connections or our willpower or our intelligence can't secure our future, we are doomed. And that would be true if it wasn't for the fact that there is a God in heaven who loves us and who delights to rescue and save, who will give his very life that we might be made new. Teach us to trust in you. Teach us to navigate crisis, confident in your love. May we not waste time and, and, and forsake peace because we're looking at ourselves to save us. Let us say yes to your salvation and walk with confidence in difficult times, knowing who our God is and where our power lies. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you guys for sticking with me on a Memorial Day. I encourage you. Uh, I don't know what the recording like is for Sunday, but we did have missionaries visit, visit uh, Luke and Jessica Bury, uh, a young couple with the EFCA Reach Global that are on their way um, to serve in Berlin uh, in kind of Eastern Germany. And so we got to hear a little bit of their story. Um, we got to uh, learn what it would look like to partner with them to pray. So I encourage you to reach out. If you missed it, reach out. We had a lovely time getting to know them. Really excited about being able to come alongside of them at the beginning of this calling uh, as they go to serve the Lord uh, and share his, his hospitality, his peace, his grace. Um, in what is one of the atheistic capitals of Europe. So don't miss out. There will be um, prayer cards for them on the Welcome Center in the back when you get here uh, next Sunday. But God bless. Happy Memorial Day, and we'll see you soon.